So I want to know what your definition of intentional is. I think to me, it means, you know, having taken the time to think about what you want to do and why, as opposed to just sort of drifting. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Alrighty, we are back for another episode and actually we're launching another mini-series. I'm unbelievably pumped for this mini-series because I'm actually just about to speak to a Vistage workshop and this topic of ownership and leadership alignment keeps coming up and if you've been following along on the podcast, we're constantly hammering home the difference between ownership, which is concerned, you're concerned about the equity, the equity valuation of your company, the distributions, and really what is your asset performance based on the risk that you're taking compared to your leadership role which is the W-2 job that you have, your roles and responsibilities, you get the W-2 paycheck for it. We have to split those off. And we've been working on that a lot lately uh, over the last 12 months or so. It's been in more and more integrated into the Intentional Growth Academy. But uh, now that we've got that separation, this desire for ownership and leadership to get aligned so that way as ownership, if you're holding the ownership hat and the leadership hat and you want to step out of your leadership role, what is necessary and how do you think like an owner and how do you work with your leadership team and how do you put Put yourself in the leadership team's position, knowing that it is unbelievably crucial for you as the owner to determine your goals so that way the leadership team can back into it. And what I mean by that before I kick off then uh, the introduction to our guest and the miniseries is that if you do not, as the owner come up with a target equity valuation at a point in time, it's very difficult to understand what kind of funding you're going to need on the way there because we don't know how much you need in distributions and what are your expectations for distributions, your partnerships, whether it's investor, whether it's another partner, whether it's a private equity firm, whether it's an ESOP, what are the ownership's equity target goals and the income goals on the way there? And then what does then the leadership team have available to them for resources and actually practical goals that are going to get them to that long-term uh, goals that everybody has alignment. And this kept coming up because leadership, when I'm speaking to key executives, they're always like, yeah, I get this huge goal. I want to, we need to go from 20 million to 30 million, but then the ownership team sucks all the cash out of the company. So it's completely unrealistic. So what we're going to be doing in this mini series is hammering home this topic through a, a couple different angles. The first angle today is I've got Dan Grimsford who's on the podcast today. He is an M&A attorney. And yes, I know you hear the word attorney, you probably have a visceral reaction uh, and all jokes aside because Dan would actually laugh at that. He is an, uh, I would call him an entrepreneur. He is the, one of the only attorneys I know who know what working capital actually means because Dan has got an accounting background. He's uh, been doing mergers and acquisitions as a partner at Best and Flanagan in the Twin Cities for a long time. I'm doing dozens of deals a year, and then he's also involved in some private equity deals himself. So he's going to be sitting on the uh, on the podcast today with me. We're going to be talking about the four different ways that an operating agreement can actually help alignment for the ownership. So we're going to be hammering home the ownership uh, goals and partnership alignment, and from capital contributions to buyouts, and to making sure that we understand how the valuation is going to happen, whether there's expectations of the partners who are also owners to stay on in an employment fashion. So we just really uh, covered these 
four main categories like governance, economics, and uh, exit strategies and crisis response, and how the operating agreement and even thinking through that. And trust me, I've been through multiple, like I think I've been through five or six partnership buyouts myself um, personally, and then there's dozens that I've worked with on our client side. And this alignment and working through in the operating agreement is in a wonderful uh, mechanism and process to everybody get aligned so then you can go crush your goals and just think about executing and th- instead of wondering what would happen. Then uh, the next few episodes to get ready for, uh, I've got uh, my family, uh, a buddy of mine who runs a family office. He's got 25 families, you need to call it uh, upwards in four, I think, billion dollars that he manages. And he's going to be talking about from the eyes of the boardroom, what does it mean to truly think like, like an owner from someone that has a lot of wealth and a lot of businesses that are very large and how they're subject to the same sort of circumstances that we are as uh, middle market entrepreneurs, then we're going to be having a couple success stories about how ownership and leadership teams get aligned with the right mechanisms and the right comp plans tied to the target equity valuation. So I'm very excited for this mini series because we're going to take it from the ownership side, from the leadership side, understanding the mechanisms and uh, the process to get alignment and what that means long term. So we have a couple spots left of the Intentional Growth Boot Camp. If you wanted to know how to do all this stuff that we're talking about, it's 5000 bucks and it's on May 11th and 12th in Orlando, Florida at Rollins College. And if you got any questions, reach out to me and we're offering some specials if you want to reach out for if you want to bring your partner and there's a, a couple things that we'll make sure that if you have other stakeholders that will uh, make sure that you get what you need to accomplish and everybody gets their butts in the, spe- in the seat so they can get a clarity and alignment. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this interview with Dan Grimsrud. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace and you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make 
the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Mr. Grimsrud, what's up, man? Good to see you. I know, like, I love it. We're back. And like, I think you just said last time we did this, it was before the pandemic. So like, yeah, wait a second. Lawyers now don't use conference bridges. They can actually get on video calls. How about that, yeah. right? I mean, you know, barely. Like 30, 35% <laughs> of the time, I still have a problem. But here I here I am. Uh, just, I'm happy you did, just didn't forward me a Citrix GoToMeeting conference bridge. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I digress already. So this is going to be fun. So Dan, for the listeners, because we're going to be jumping in the operating agreements, how the operating agreements can be a way to get an ownership alignment between different parties, and then how to roll that through to the leadership team, etc. But what's your background, man? Like for the people that have not listened to your previous interview with me, uh, why don't you give them a, your, uh, your your background? I think you have some interesting aspects of your education too, man, that make it uh, an interesting set of circumstances to do what you're doing yeah i mean mostly just miseducated which is always interesting right but um no I, you know i was accounting and finance in undergrad and just knew that i you know wanted to be in an entrepreneurial space but also just sort of thought i didn't necessarily want to be an accountant wanted a little different place to sit maybe a little broader lens and so um you know went to law school uh, and, you know, right away kind of got into the business of helping people kind of organize and, and their businesses from, from a legal perspective and, you know, have over time started off kind of for probably 10 years doing mostly kind of the, that organizational stuff, a ton of operating agreements and uh, shareholder agreements and that kind of stuff, getting stuff set up on the front end and then, you know, have ultimately evolved into doing a fair amount of M&A, um, you know, activity and actually really interesting, I think, to see, you know, operating agreements at the beginning of things, and then to understand, you know, the implications for how those things are put together at in, in an exit stage situation. And, and so, you know, kind of kind of have looked at these things from a lot of different angles at a lot of different places in the life cycle of a business over over, you know, I, I can't believe it, but 20 years now. So it's been and no messes, all clean. No, yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you couldn't no, even keep a smile I mean, on your face. <laughs> no, and that's the thing. I think you've got to, I think actually, you know, I think the messes kind of are sometimes the places where you learn the most, right? About, you know, understanding the limitations, understanding one, the importance of the documents and of getting on the same page on the front end. And then also understanding that there has to be, you know, a, a process of checking back in because as businesses evolve, you know, things that you thought made, made perfect sense at, at one stage of the life cycle don't make sense anymore. So it's got to be an ongoing thing. And I think anybody that tells you they can give you a document that you can just throw in a drawer and that'll be working well 20 years later is, is not being realistic about how the world works. Yeah. And, uh, I, <laughs> so as like the messy, I think is the only like messy is how did you word it like that we can learn some things from that. So what our goal is with this episode is don't learn on your own dime. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Let's learn on let's learn on Dan's experiences and mine experience and our experiences, uh, dime. Yeah. So that way you can hopefully avoid some of this. And coming from my own angle, my own perspective, three partnership buyouts as well as even the family business, we had a couple as well. So uh, 
that doesn't count the dozens of our clients. And I can't even imagine how many you've gone through. So Dan, what, one of the things that I want to do for this, as we were talking about the mini series and like ownership and the leadership, those roles need to be separate. The operating room, it talks about that too. Different ownership groups have different timelines, different desires. And like, it's so crazy, man. Cause like the, the amount of people I talk to every day who are just not even close to aligned or on the same page with their partners they originally had to have a partnership agreement. So somehow they thought through this. So like, why don't you just give us like, what do you normally see that like the normal practice of a starting an operating agreement is when someone's jumping into business? Yeah. I mean, it's all over the map, right? I mean, it's a fair, you know, there's, there's a fair, fairly frequently people kind of try to figure something out on their own. And then they come to us either when they're bringing someone in or when they realize there's something that they didn't deal with that they need to. I mean, obviously, our, our, you know, the, the preferred scenario is someone's coming to you with your idea and, and, you know, you're kind of starting, um, at the beginning with getting something in place that you think can work, you know, at least for that first stage of the business. But, you know, I think that's, I mean, to me, it's, you know, and, and I've said to you before, I, you know, I always say, I'm going to probably say things that are going to get me in trouble with the lawyers union. I think one of the problems that happens is that people try to, you know, every time they draft a new document, they come up with a new provision and then they put that in their template. And pretty soon their template is an 80 page document. And they say, you know, this covers every scenario. I mean, two things about that one, it, it's really just really hard for people to deal with, right? People are, are, this is not entrepreneurs are not lawyers for the most part, usually Um, uh, lawyers aren't usually very good entrepreneurs. And so they don't know, you know, that you, you put a document in front of them that there's, you know, of the 80 pages, 78 are things that they don't know what they're about. And it ends let's up start being, with like, let's start like with getting people like that to read the subject line in the yeah, email that the right. attachment is getting delivered by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think to me, it's about, you know, the, in a perfect world, you're, you're sitting down with someone having a conversation about, okay, what is the business? Who are the constituents to your point? Is it? Three people well, starting you're right, business. Sorry, I'm going I'm to interrupt you. Why don't you actually, because like, I can see you're going down this path, walk through what is the purpose in the operating agreement? Like, yeah, because you know, I know you're the enemy or the perfect is enemy of the good, but there is an intent for the operating. So totally. why don't you just walk us through? Yeah, that? yeah. So it's just setting, you know, it's sort of setting the rules of the road, right? I mean, it's 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 creating expectations for for the partners. Obviously, the parties to an operating agreement are are all owners of the business. And so they can be in different categories, but they all have an ownership interest. And so you're using the operate agreement, uh, operating agreement to set expectations for everyone about what that ownership means for them. And, you know, and to, and to provide some certainty on key pieces, you know, and, and part of what I object to about sort of the process of saying I've updated my document over the years and now it's 80 pages is it creates this false sense of security that that document can deal with every scenario that could ever unfold and can provide complete certainty on everything. I think what you want to do is sit down with the people who are going to be owners and say, okay, what are you doing? Where are you at? What are you putting in here? And you tell me first what you really care about here. What are the core elements of this business and this partnership that you really care about that everyone wants to to be on the same page on? And then I'll tell you the core things that I think you need to be on the same page on. And then once we have that list of the things that matter to you and the things that matter to me, we can put something together that you can all use as a, as a, as a jumping off place with the understanding that as things 
evolve uh, over time, we're going to have to revisit some of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what I'm thinking about, like how we can have uh, how we can structure this conversation, Dan, with that kind of context is what I think is knowing that you and I work with clients a lot to do this, we can use just the the overarching questions that people will be asked. So like I can I can kind of play the role of like, hey, as a business owner, these are my thoughts and everything, everything from like the inception, but then all the way to like, Hey, there's going to be a buyout. Cause like, that's kind of that overarching, uh, art that you're talking about. <laughs> but I was thinking about like the 80 page document is one, but then also I could think about probably there's 90, you know, percent probably that I could see have, it's like the equivalent having the ADP sign in front or the not. Yeah. Right. ADP. Yeah. like hey you actually don't have a security system so it's there's there's no document there but there's all of the spirit of the original discussion so let's talk about like when two people or let's say a couple partners come together and they have to do what like how do you like what are some of the the main core things that the partnership has to agree upon on the outset yeah so when we're talking about an entity a partnership for example certainly you know when we're talking about an operating agreement it you know, that conversation presumes that you have an entity, right? So you formed an entity and now you're saying, what are we going to, how are we going to govern ourselves? And the way I think about operating agreements or shareholder agreements, I think you have sort of four key elements. You have governance, obviously who's going to decide what. And I think a good operating agreement, especially in a partnership scenario with two or more people, probably there's a couple different components to that, but I'll just sort of lay it out across the top first. You've got governance, you got economics, you've got, you know, an exit plan, you know, and then you've got to talk about kind of a crisis response plan, right? And so mm-hmm. I think those are kind of the key elements in my mind is sort of if you if you talk about all those things and have a conversation around the expectations of the partners in those categories, I think you're pretty far on the way to having a document that that does the job. Mm. And so I, I love that, man. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say before, because I could see us unpacking each of those and how those four categories can be handled differently as time elapses. But before that, Dan, like I think about all the clients that I end up having conversations with where it's like, oh, I was at a conference or I was at this trade show or at the bar. Dan and I are going to start a business. And, you know, whether it's two companies that have synergistic and they want to have a JV relationship or it's two people that actually want to start an entity, but there's a mismatch of the quote unquote resources. Is it IP? Is it cash? Is it labor? How do you figure out what is, you know, equal to things that are being contributed when people are actually spinning up the entity or the the capital contributions? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's really tricky. And it's also, it's not only tricky because it's, it's, it's a, it's a delicate sort of process of trying to be a facilitator, you know, without having anybody in the conversation feel like you're trying to advocate for one or the other, but certainly part of facilitating is, is, is saying, okay, you know, this person's putting in a million dollars and, you're putting in this idea that, you know, doesn't really have adequate IP protection around it right now. So I'm not sure if that sounds mm-hmm. like 50-50 to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so trying to figure out how to facilitate that, I think I'm a believer in, you know, getting, having that conversation as opposed to, from my chair, as opposed to just saying, geez, I don't want to touch that and I'll draft it however mm-hmm. you tell me to, because then it, it gets, tends to get a little tricky down the line when 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 they have that conversation at a time that's too late. Yeah. Um, The other thing I would just say on that point, Ryan, that I think is important in this whole thing is, you know, the importance of having tax advisors that are involved. They don't need to be 
involved that uh, we're going to engage them for a hundred hours kind of level. And we, mm-hmm. you know, just like you, I mean, we have a ton of accountants and tax advisors that we work with that, you know, oftentimes, even if I can't persuade a client or if, or if they're at a point where they don't, they don't have the, the wherewithal or the budget to get a, a, t- a sophisticated tax advisor on board, I mean, I'll just use some context of mine to make some calls. Because when you talk about like something like that, sometimes people come in and say, I'm going to contribute a thousand hours of, of work to this thing and you're going to contribute some cash. Well, you know, if I get if you put in a million dollars and I get 50% for a contribution of time, that's a taxable event for me. You know, it's just one example of a place where I've stepped mm-hmm. in something that wasn't on my radar. So, you know, what I always try to do is get everybody first thing to just dump all the pieces of the puzzle on the table. Mm-hmm. Tell me mm-hmm. everything that you have in mind and then, and then let me sort of say, okay, here's some, here's some, here's some parameters and some, some things we need to deal with to make sure that we get this done in a way that doesn't create unforeseen challenges for you. So I love that. And I'm going to, I want to unpack that a little bit more before we move on to those four components. So like, is it fair to say too, like with with the reason for the tax advisor, where I'm thinking about the examples that I've been involved in, where it's like, there's the human reason of saying, Dan, you're putting in a million dollars. I'm putting in a million dollars of IP because I think the IP is worth a million dollars. So we're both coming to the table of what we think the transaction is going to be worth based on fair market. But then you you kind of like is it is is it safe to say that like agree upon that and then go to the tax advisor and be like now let's not yeah. step in a big pile of dog shit because our yeah. egos were in the way we're like That's- if you told me I could do something differently and then save money where I'd have to reduce my IP value or whatever it is but like it's not an ego reason <laughs> yeah no exactly I think that so huge is you know for people and I always sort of that's why I said I like to try to you know not not to say that I'm trying to interrogate people, but I do like to try to press those partners in that initial meeting to, to make sure you do that everybody understands everybody else's expectations and that they get on the same page first. And then if, if those stakes are in the ground about what everybody expects, then you can build something, including, like you said, something that's maybe a little different than what they had in mind. But you can say, this is, we're going to go in a little different direction because it's going to be more tax efficient as long as everybody is on the same page as far as sort of those key pieces of who's getting what and why, you know? So, so let's, uh, the IP, I think you covered a great example, cash or equipment or things that are hard assets like that. There's just probably an equal uh, like exchange and then the tax wrap around it. You covered the IP. You mentioned the labor too. And I see this get messed up so much because owners slash, and we're going to separate for the rest of this conversation, ownership, equity ownership versus W2 wages. So the ownership wants to have um wants to have the, you you get you talk about ownership but then the labor right yeah. so ownership that i see so many times when they have a role it's like let's yeah. not take a salary because we can take our distributions and there's all this conflating that goes yeah. in but why don't you explain two part let's say you and our partners i'm going to be working for a thousand hours you're providing capital how mm-hmm. does that how do we handle the ownership versus leadership yeah. concept with that example it's so huge and you're so right. You know, yeah, it's the it's one of the places where you see the most problems with misaligned expectations. You know, if the if if you have an idea and, and the ability to sort of drive it toward liftoff, but you don't have the capital and I have the capital, and so we have an arrangement where I'm gonna put in a million dollars and you're gonna bring your 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 willingness to, to, to help us achieve liftoff. You know, we have to be incredibly 
first of all, we, we have to be careful on two fronts. One, we have to be careful that we do that in a way that doesn't jam you up. Because if I put in a million dollars and you put in one dollar and a promise to, to work a thousand hours, you just got 50% of a business that has a million dollar valuation. And you just got a, you just had a $500,000 ordinary income tax event because you just mm. got basically paid wages of $500,000. It doesn't matter that you got them in the form of 50% of a business that's worth a million. You got them. And so that's a nightmare. And people don't realize that. The other piece is, you know, you get, if you don't have clear agreement and alignment around expectations, you get resentment in both directions, right? You get, <laughs> totally. you get, you did the work. And for some reason that beyond your control, we did not achieve liftoff. And so my investment didn't return what I hoped it might. And now I'm mad and I'm sort of saying, geez, I mean, you should give me money because I lost a million bucks. And then the flip side is true too. In the better, obviously better scenario, we do achieve liftoff and um, you make it happen with with the expertise and the work that you bring to the table, and uh, and then and then you're really not pleased about sharing fifty percent with me because you're saying I'm the guy making it happen. And how mm-hmm. does this guy get? Which is why you know a lot of times, like you think about that scenario you just described. I, you know, I'm probably going to end up. I mean, it's oversimplifying, but I'm probably going to end up talking to those people about some different tranches. I'm probably going to be end up talking to them about maybe I get some kind of preferred return on the first tranche of money that comes in. So I do get back some of the cash I put in before you get, you know, a big return. But then maybe tranche two, once I get made whole, is that you get a, a, a time period where you get more of that return than I do because you're the one that made it happen. And then maybe tranche three is it settles into some kind of so- equilibrium. I love I, I loving that. So because again, you're addressing the fact that it's going to evolve. And I just want to make sure that we're, we're clear here that we're talking from the ownership, which the ownership cares about equity growth and distributions yeah. Yeah. and the return on the capital. So like, yeah. in this example, if I'm working a 1000 hours for for my for my ownership, right. so therefore, technically, yeah. my wages are foregone. Yeah to buy in the ownership. So explain how that is where, cause like, it, it, let me give you a kind of a, well, it's not kind of, it's a legit example of someone I know where they had this example where capital goes in, liftoff was taken, liftoff happened. And it was like real liftoff, dude. Like yeah. I'm talking like well high eight figures, close to nine figure liftoff. And the, because they didn't get this arranged the right way, the original investors were taking a salary the whole freaking time. You're talking like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. of salaries because they were like, when they put their money in originally, they're like, well, I'm not getting a salary. You are. So again, they're conflating W2 wages, yeah. ownership. You, you tracking me? Totally. And I think one, like in the example, to go back to the example you, you, you use where you and I are partners. I mean, the other thing you'd have to do in that scenario is say, okay, what happens to Ryan's compensation expectations for his work in the business? What happens to those once he's sort of paid back that initial sort of uh, commitment of labor. And so, you know, I think it's, you're so right that it's a huge place where people go wrong, where they don't deal with on the front end. Okay. We have a four person partnership group, but we really have three investors and one entrepreneur. And that entrepreneur is going to be working in the business every day, all day. And these other three investors are are doing other things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they're providing the capital. You've got to deal with upfront 
that separate issue of, of if you're the entrepreneur, your compensation for that work you're doing. And so, like I said, sometimes some of the compensation is in the form of, well, that's how they got their units. But n- nobody is going to be okay with that forever and ever and ever, right? I mean, you, you've got to say, okay, we're giving you this 25% interest with these expectations around achieving liftoff, but that doesn't mean you're an indentured servant for the rest of your life. So here's what happens. We pivot into a new arrangement where you that you have this, um, you know, employment arrangement that gives you some kind of you know salary, which in the partnership context is referred to as a guaranteed payment, you know, and maybe maybe on top of that a kicker, you know, that that creates alignment with short term and long term. But that's one of the things that people don't do, and it and it causes huge issues with some clients that you know some some that you and I have had in common over the years that that we could both think of where you know, over time, as things evolve, you know, sometimes it's just that one person doesn't work very hard. Sometimes it's just that the business evolves in a way where the skills and talents of one partner become much more important to the business than the skills and talents of other partners. And if you don't have some mechanic to deal with that, so that you can, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. not have that massive resentment bomb go off in the middle of your business. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a bomb that goes off immediately too. you and I No, it's like one of the Mario ones where it goes like black and just slowly starts going and then it gets white and then it blows up. No one one knows where it came from. And and it blows up at a time when the business is, uh, usually, usually that that's a time when the business has some value and, and, and the blow and, and the explosion is pretty darn disruptive. Well, and I think about like what you just, what we just covered too, we ebbed and flowed through W2 wage roles and ownership roles. And when you're talking about expectations too, and especially when people have different timelines or like, I mean, you have different ownership groups. It could be Dan Grimsrud is also partners with a private equity firm that has different things that, that, that people need. So when you're when you're walking through an operating agreement, how do you segment out ownership goals and then leadership roles and how those should be be clarified? Yeah, well, first of all, I think you you first have to understand, you know, the full picture in terms of who's bringing what, you know, in terms of capital and then who's bringing what in terms of sort of skills, talents, expertise that the company is going to need going forward. And you have to have a conversation about what is that second group of people going to get that the first group doesn't. How, and, and, and oftentimes it's not even, you know, not to complicate the world, but oftentimes it's not even in the operating agreement. You know, you're talking at some point about another document, right? Cause you're sort of saying, okay, the operating agreement is going to govern, you know, Ryan and I are coming into this business and I'm bringing nothing but capital and he's bringing nothing but sort of experience expertise. You know, we're going to have an arrangement that's going to say how we're going to make decisions, how the economics of distributions are going to flow. But then we're also going to have to have an arrangement. If if I'm smart about this and this is there, there are a lot of really sophisticated business people who do um, a lot of these kinds of partnerships where they bring capital and somebody else brings that business expertise. And one of the things I think I would say in, in observing those folks, they're wanting to have conversations around the, the compensation of the person in that experience expertise share right from the beginning, because they want everybody to know, I know this matters and I want to value it because the only way to have this be a long-term partnership is to have that person be rewarded for that sweat you know, that they're pouring into the business. And if you don't have that conversation because you think, oh, this is going to be great, 
I'm going to sort of get away with one, you know, and, and Ryan's not, the only thing you're doing is ensuring that you will have that bomb go off if the business is successful. And mm-hmm. because if it's successful, you're going to come to me and say, this is madness. I mean, I'm killing myself here and we've achieved liftoff and we never dealt with this and we need to deal with it now. And that's a tough time to have that conversation. If I've given, if we've created something on the front end that we both think is fair and we've dealt with the fact that you're going to be killing yourself in that business. And then you come to me later and say, geez, you know, we're killing it. And I just think I should get a greater share than I have been. At least now I'm in a position where we operated in good faith on the front end and we had the conversation and I can say, geez, I mean, I'm open to this discussion, but you know, it's not, it's not like we didn't have this conversation and we, we came up with something that we thought was fair. So maybe we should live with it. But when, when you've never had the conversation about what's different between ownership and sort of the, the management and the day-to-day running of the business, it's a hundred percent of the time. The, the only scenarios where it doesn't become a problem are where the business fails, you know, <laughs> you know because then, then you never, who can yeah. pay off the most amount of debt, <laughs> right? Then you never have to worry about it because it's just like nobody wants to fight over a carcass, right? <laughs> But you're you're so true. It's so right, man. And the in the resentment that I've watched. I mean, I did a podcast years ago called "Solving Problems Through Payroll" because people don't understand valuations. They don't understand when and how the trade offs of distributions versus reinvestment reinvestments work. So everybody gets two hundred grand. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, truly, it's like well, this one guy hasn't stepped into the office for ten years, but he still right. gets a salary. Totally, and it's because well, we didn't understand how this works. So I want to go kind of loop back to the tranches. So there's some challenges with with pass through entities where, and it's so funny because as we get into like ESOPs and exit analysis, you know, down the road, people really have to start thinking about this because the percentage of ownership mandates the distributions. So like, let's, let's kind of throw in Dan, like, let's say you're twice my age, you have different wealth perspectives. And so I, cause I think about, I mean, the client, the client I talked to this morning, I mean, there's always, it's partnerships, brother-in-laws yeah. that are timeline differences, wealth difference and income difference. How do you have those conversations? Cause it's still possible to align everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think part of it is, as you said, it's entity type, right. And one of the things that, um, you know, you have to really, and this is where you really do need a partner. I mean, certainly we do a lot of entity selection, you know, work and partner with folks to figure that out. But the, the more dollars involved, the more insistent I am about having a, a, a tax person at the table too. Um, but, you know, in a very simplistic way, you sort of have C-Corps, right? You have S-Corps, and then you have these whole this whole sort of family of different entities that are all taxes partnerships. Um you know, in the C Corp, really, I mean, obviously, if you're doing that, you're doing it typically because you're trying to access a certain class of investor that probably wants to see the, the entity set up that way. You know, and I think the S Corp has been something that people are in love with, and there's some sort of payroll tax advantages to it. But the S Corp is, to your point, is very restrictive. I mean, you cannot distribute money any differently than the ownership percentages. And so, you know, I think sometimes people get depending on, you know, and, and I don't want to make this sound like it's the fault of the accountants. If you don't ask a bunch of questions about what is this thing today? What is your objective for it? Where are you trying to take it? You know, you can end up <laughs> Wait, with something. What? Planning? Yeah. Oh I mean, you God, can end up no. with something in an S-Corp wrapper that's a disaster. And, you know, so, and, and one of the things I always say to people is you can make an S election down the line. You can't really, it's very difficult to undo it. 
right? And so, you know, we do a lot of partnership. When we talk about people, that, uh, an entity that has partners that are differently situated, like you're describing, you know, I think a partnership, uh, you know, an entity that's taxed as a partnership is a really, uh, is, it would be my sort of starting point because you really do have the ability there. You know, you can allocate profits and losses differently. You can have multiple tranches. You can have preferred. You can have multiple tranches of returns. You can use, I mean, one of the things that, that people, you know, aren't always familiar with, but you can use profits interest, which is a, sort of a really cool tool that you can use to bring people in after your business is up and running in, in a way that's tax advantageous to them. Like, are you talking about PIUs and like stock, phantom stock and stuff? Yeah. Yep. And so well, and I, I think, you know, you said, that, to me, it's, 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 it's making sure you've got to understand the, the players and, and what their sort of situations and expectations are before you decide on an entity. And I think it's a mistake sometimes when people say, my buddy owns a car wash and he's an S-corp, so I think I should be an S-corp. Well, you know, maybe your business is different from that in important ways. Well, and, and it's also like... It's so funny because it's like it's really what everybody desires is act, the inverse is actually the the probably more uh, the practical one, which what I mean is like if let's say I'm half your age, I probably need more income. Mm-hmm. I do desire long-term wealth creation, but right. usually when someone's longer in their career, they need less income and they're optimizing for wealth. Right. So it's like even though we both want what we just said, yeah. that we're legally obligated to take the exact same amount. So if I need more to make my lifestyle work, you have to then, it's just like this weird. I'll give you a really good example of, of the importance, you know, if you want to like talk about a tangible example of, of the importance of an operating agreement in this exact setting that we're talking about, you know, I, I've, I, I saw recently a situation where you had four owners of a business and, you know, one of whom had much different, was in a much different place and had much greater wealth than the others. And they didn't have any provision that provided for tax distributions to cover the income that the partnership threw off. And so the only way they could do that is if they got majority agreement on that. And this person who had the wealth had the ability to block that. And so you have these other people who the the, the problems that really feel you get a $50,000 tax bill while you're trying to pay your mortgage and pay for your kids daycare. With, and all that yeah. Shit. With no cash to pay it. Right. And the, <laughs> the problems that really feel extremely frustrating, you know, when a business fails, it's very difficult, very ugly and sort of predictably. So, right. The problems that feel really maddening are the ones where the business is doing well and you have a problem because you're sort of like, how did we not, create a situation where we could avoid this. And that was one where, you know, those, those other three people that were killing it in the business were sort of being held hostage on some other things because they needed those tax distributions to make their lives work. And this other person who had the ability to block those was saying, well, you know, it's not in the agreement. And so I'll do it, but only if you do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's an example of that's a huge miss to not have had the person sitting in my chair on the front end say, okay, let's raise this issue right now that uh-huh. you three have this situation and we should have, we should have this provision in here, or if we're not going to have it, it should be because I recommended it and you guys said, no, we don't need that. But uh-huh. it, it's, I, I would, I guarantee, I mean, I know for a fact that in that circumstance, nobody talked to those three about that. So they had no idea. They had never been in an ownership situation before. They had no idea that there was ever going to be a scenario where they could have tax and no cash 
to pay the tax, which people that have only worked obviously as employees, I mean, you, your taxes come out of your paycheck and you know, they're paid. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Prepayment of taxes. What right. quarterly estimates. I mean, right. it's, it's uh well, and I think also that it, you, it kind of goes back to you and we can get, move on after this, but like, it goes back to your earlier point of the resentment will come some side well, on some yeah. side, because it's either you're, you have the cap on and you're going like, I don't, like it, I can see both sides perfectly fair totally. and Absolutely. it just ha- hasn't been discussed to your point. So That's then right. it's like, we're sitting on the roller coaster going, should we be on this roller coaster? Yeah. Like, well, wouldn't it have been nice to know before we strapped in? And like, I think about yeah. like, in, if you've got the capital, you're like, now I'm put over a barrel because I'm going to be threatened by the people doing the work. Totally. And if you're the yeah. one doing the work, you're going, wait a second, all he has to do or she has to do is write a check. And there's no effort. So there's, yeah. And, and the resentment thing is so huge. And I've had the conversation a whole bunch of times where, you know, you've got somebody, a client of mine, who's a sophisticated veteran of these kinds of arrangements, right. Coming into a situation where there's folks who are not that, and, you know, you could, you could see the perspective of, Hey, don't, I don't want to have a big discussion about this because these guys don't know what's going on and they'll just let us put it however we want. And we can put it together in a way that's to my advantage. And, my response to that is always, you know, again, don't create a situation where the time where you have the biggest problems is when you have a successful business. I mean, if you have a conversation on the front end where everybody gets a chance to weigh in and you make decisions as a group and you and I, you know, have the full conversation when I'm bringing the capital and you're bringing the expertise about what you're going to get for that. And then we cut a deal that we both are okay with. Then I have the benefit of if we if we kill it and you come back and say you know I really want more money at least I have the ability to say geez Ryan we talked about this and we signed you know we we went through this mm-hmm. whole process and we had a full conversation about it and this is what we agreed to so it feels like a retrade um, mm-hmm. you know I mean I'm in a way better position than if I had tried to sort of you know trick you into signing something on the front end and didn't so have the funny, ability Dan, to say like, we had a fair conversation about it well and like what you just said the story you just t- said. I mean, I, I don't know if it's because my daughters are six and a half, but like how much shit in business right now, it's like, if I was talking to my kids, do you think that's fair? Yeah. Take all of the legal jargon bullshit out of it. Do you think that's fair or not? No. Couldn't agree more. What what else do we need to have a conversation about? Totally. Totally And so Dan, like. As we move on to like the governance, economics, exodus, and crisis, we can kind of just keep using the examples to roll through these, but I want to make sure we don't uh, forget them. But I'm thinking about like how rare it is, man, that like I sit down with someone and be like, I have a target equity valuation at a point in time. And by the way, here's my expectations from salary and distributions on the way there and how we're going to fund it. Like it's a whopping zero pretty much. So then like, how in the hell, when you're sitting down with someone, like, are you uncovering what my expectations for wealth creation or the income distributions might be? Like, is it more, do I want more dividends or more equity growth? And I think about like how many challenges that are, because like, here's where this is coming from, Dan, is I was at the Vistage workshop a couple of weeks ago. I was in with the key, the key executive group. I'm like, raise your hand if you're a key, key executive CEO, president or something like that. And you did your annual plan and it's like 20, you want to go from 20 million to 30 million. And everyone's like, woo. And then all of a sudden the ownership group sucks all the distributions out. You got no funding for that plan. Like, yep, all the time. And it's the, the, because people just willy nilly show up at these meetings. Like, Hey, there's excess cash. Let's take the money out. 
but there's no like synced up long-term plan. How do you uncover that when you're having these conversations? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's these conversations, as you know, are across a very wide spectrum of both, you know, sophistication, expertise, experience. And so, you know, I think you have to sort of try to figure out how to meet people where they are, but then, you know, get them to, you know, I think you have to build a slightly better spot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think you have to build credibility by not trying to, again, by not trying to drop the 80 page template on them by not saying, you know, you need 80 pages and you need to pay me $20,000 to deal with every scenario that could ever unfold, (laughs) you know, and instead just sort of say, okay, here's the thing. We need to create a situation where you have alignment. We need to be able, we're not going to be able to look out across the horizon of 40 years, right? What we need to be able to do is look out over this five-year horizon and say, we need to create a situation that, one, deals with, you know, kind of the key economics and governance issues that you're going to confront during that time in a way that, that you guys feel good about. And that hopefully creates a situation where there's, to go back to your point with your, your, your daughters, which I think is a really good point, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's not usually very complicated to figure out what's fair. You know, the, 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 to, to create a situation where if, if I'm doing something, you know, for, for you and your business partner, when you're just achieving, you know, just about to launch, I want to say, what I want to do is figure out all the stuff that we need to deal with in this first phase of the business and make sure that we've got that all covered. And then I want to create a situation where you guys are in a place that's fair in terms of when you do need to come back and change this thing in ways that reflect the way that your business has evolved in expected and unexpected ways, you're doing it from a place of fairness. You're not in mm-hmm. a situation where you have no ability to control any of that. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things, again, that I would say, you know, to the, you know, certainly I've had business, I've had, uh, I've had 50, 50 partner businesses that have worked and some that haven't, but even when, when you have 70, 30 or 60, 40, or whatever it is, I, I still always encourage that person that has a majority to give that minority person some some decisions where they have to be unanimous because if, if somebody is in there getting jammed all the time and just getting constantly steamrolled, you know, it's not going to work. And I mean, it's nice in theory and the lawyer who drafts the one sided document. Let's take my daughters again. I've got one that'll just beat Zoe just beats everly over the head a little bit. And it's like the bomb in Mario. It's coming, man. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's going to be lethal. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And you're in business together most of the time because you need each other, right? You bring complementary skills and talents. And so what kind of world is it to to take a person that you need and, and try to put them at a disadvantage right off the bat? I mean, it just doesn't. Well, and I'll, I'll be honest, man, like, uh, the, the, the conversations, I mean, for the listeners, I mean, Dan, you helped set up our last, our last operating agreement and, and the exercise of going through it is yeah. what helped. Yeah. Like, it's just like, because you're having that conversation yeah. ahead of time, right? Yeah. Like, and so that, that time going through and having these conversations, like, Hey, we can go back to the yeah. drawing board and have this mature conversation. Cause yeah. I already remember having this conversation yeah. in the past and we were kind of like this. So Let's kind of let's roll into these four buckets. We're sure. talking about governance, yeah. economics, exits, and crisis. So, yeah. when you're talking about governance, what goes into governance, and then how does that overall management and decision making work? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you know, first of all, this is a good place to say, like, there's you know, people say, why do I need an operating agreement? I mean, first of all, if you have a business that's dealing with the outside world at all, whether that's banks or anybody 
they're going to want to see it. You know, they want to see it to know that whoever's signing can in fact sign. So, I mean, you almost always need it for that reason, but you know, and, and, you know, probably a, a full employment plan for lawyers, you know, every state has a different LLC statute there. The majority of those are built off of a model statute. So there's, you know, significant overlap and similarity, but there's all these little traps and differences. And like, for example, you know, there, there are default rules. I mean, there are states that have a default rule that says if you and I are partners, we have an equal vote, regardless of what our percentages are. It's sort of a per capita rather than a pro rata. So that's a good example of something that, you know, that's usually not the way people, that's not aligned with people's expectations. So mm-hmm. on governance, you know, again, back to the point I just made, what I, what I always say on governance is you got to think about it in tiers. If you and I are going into business together, even if we're going to be 70, 30, you know, my own view is that there are certainly exceptions to this, but my own view is that, you know, there are going to be things that I, that, that we should, we should have unanimity around, you know, there are going to be decisions that we're going to make. You know, I think a good example would be, you know, if you and I agree, for example, usually if if we agree that we've got a separate um, expectation around employment, you know, you're going to be the the person working in the business, right? Uh And so we, Uh we come up with an employment agreement for you that gives you a salary and gives you a bonus structure. I think it doesn't make a lick of sense for me to be able to to just change that because I have 70%. I mean, that mm-hmm. would be a good example mm-hmm. of something that I just think is totally counterproductive. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're going to change the mission of the business, if we're if we're making widgets and now we're going to, you know, go sell ice cream. I mean, we've got to have a conversation about that and have I don't want to it doesn't do me any good to be able to sort of jam you into that anyway because you're not going to mm-hmm. go along mm-hmm. with that. So I think you have to drive a conversation about what are the things about this that you both are sort of have perfect alignment on that are sort of the reasons you're doing this, that you should have some, um, you know, that well, you should like a have lot of the stuff we talked about. Right. I mean, yeah. like, and that's why we don't have to cover governance too much. Cause like if I believe in ours, it was pay job responsibilities, but then also our desired distributions, how we're handling taxes. Like, yeah. it's, I think that's all, uh, yeah. The, all, um, like, it has to be universal. Exactly. And the, a good example is what we talked about earlier, the tax distributions, right? If, if mm-hmm. you and I are in that position and I'm the one bringing the capital and, you, and you've got more of an income need from the business, I shouldn't be able to just take away the tax distributions without you signing off on that. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. usually, if you have a good conversation with people, you usually come up with a half a dozen things that, you know, that should be in that category. And then you've got other things that are just in the category of, you know, yeah, the majority does control, you know, and you've got other things that are in the category of, yeah, the majority controls, but then you get a buyout. You know, I can, you know, for example, in that scenario where you have the employee, most majority owners are not going to agree to um, give up the ability to terminate the employment. But then most people who are in the employee role are going to say, yeah, that's fine. But then I get bought, I get bought out. If you're going to terminate my employment, then I get to be bought up because I don't want to be a passive owner in this business where the only reason I got in is because I know how to run it. Um, I love that example. Let's pull that thread in for a second. And the reason I love it, Dan, is because I have been just beating the drum of the separation of leadership versus ownership yeah. roles. However, just yeah. because they're separate, the concept needs to be understood. But yeah. what I think was crucial that you just hit on is you can still – as long as you understand they're separate, tie them to an event, oh, right? Yeah. Like you just said. So, so like, like a lot of professional services firms, I've seen this with a lot of our clients where it's like, hey, you get to a point where you don't want a lot of passive owners of professional services firms, aka uh, law firms and CPA firms, right? Totally. <laughs> like, yes. Where they get up top and it's all the people that are doing the labor can't get access yeah. to the ownership. But like, so explain that again, maybe restated, like 
how you can have them separate, but then you can tie them towards an outcome that you desire. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that's sort of, I, and I've always said, you know, I've had owners who have been in the process of bringing in a, a, a key executive level manager person who said, you know, and have asked me, what is, what do these arrangements typically look like? And you sort of start to talk about that and they say, well, don't raise this or that with them because I don't want to give them that unless they ask for it. And it's like, you know, the, this or that is about alignment. It's about creating alignment. And I, I mean, I'm going to make more money if you and I are aligned. And if you think that the way for you to make more money is to have me make more money. Right. And so, (laughs) you know, the the examples that we see a lot are, you know, you'll, you'll create, obviously, like I said, if you're going to have employee owners, I think that there should absolutely be a buyout. I would tell majority owners of businesses, I wouldn't give up the right to terminate someone, but I would say, if you're terminating them for cause or or if they just leave to go somewhere else, then that's probably buyout scenario A, where they probably don't do as well. But if you're terminating them without cause because you just found a, a, somebody you think's better, or if they leave because you took away a bunch of their responsibilities, they should get, you know, you they should get an attractive buyout. And quite frankly, someone who agrees to sign on to a scenario where that's not in place probably isn't someone who's going to be somebody that you want. I mean, you know, if, if somebody doesn't focus on it, right? No, if somebody, if you, if you're hiring a C-level person and, and you don't have a negotiation, I think it's a huge red flag. I mean, mm-hmm. they've got to be able to advocate for themselves or they shouldn't be in that role is my, mm-hmm. my own view. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of places like that. You know, you talk about, you, you know, you talk about compensatory things. I mean, if you're my guy running the business and I'm the capital, and I've put a bonus program out there for you. I mean, I don't think I should, just because I have a majority ownership, I don't think I should be able to change that. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because op- then that's because it's operational, right? Whether exactly. it was me or a different president, you would yeah. operationally still put that together for your asset that you want to grow and value. Yeah, that's right. And I think you, you, you hit it on the head. I mean, it, it, th- that stuff, probably most of it, there certainly becomes when you have employee owners, there's an overlap between the operating agreement, and some of the other agreements, but there's usually a suite of other agreements too. You know, you're usually most of my clients who have that set up where they have a business, either that's big enough that they just need a bunch more management horsepower than they themselves can provide or where they're passive, you know, they're creating, they're, they're, they're using multiple tools to create that alignment. And then they have the, then they have the, the wisdom to go back and revisit it. You know, I've had transactions that have gone, I've had transactions, you know, those kinds of transactions that we all love to work on where somebody started something and it turned into some, a business that was worth a, a whole bunch of money. And, you know, you have key lieutenants who, you know, it's funny, people think they're, they've won if they get to, you know, a transaction and they haven't made any commitments to their key lieutenants. They think, oh, this is great. I, I got this all the way to this to this exit and I don't owe anybody any money. Well, the buyer comes in and looks and says, Oh, Dan's been off in Scottsdale for the last 10 years while these three key lieutenants have been running the business and they have no agreements in place of any kind. And Mm -hmm. so the only way I'm going to buy Dan's business is if he takes 25% of the purchase price and gives it (laughs) to these people and gets them to sign on to something that's going to restrict them from going and doing this on their own. And, and, you know, I've been saying to clients for years and just had just had a couple exits recently where, you know, we had key people that were under agreements. And, you know, you don't have to have that conversation. You know what you're doing. You've created that alignment. Everybody's winning. 
I mean, it's it's way well, think better. About the due diligence and all the anxiety, even in the six months prior to even getting to the point where that totally. messed up situation probably got there too. So let's talk about exits. I want to uh, do a time check here because I want to talk about exits and buyouts and valuations sure. and then the crisis kind of all kind yeah. of looped into one. Are we good with that? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. So let, let's talk about the buyouts thing because like buyouts, there's a huge umbrella of this, right? And, yeah. I, and I don't know if you want to lump in exits and crisis, but like there's out of the blue offers actually yeah. prepping to go to sale. There's all these different combinations, yeah. but like maybe we'd start with your overall like approach and philosophy towards handling that topic in general. Yeah. I mean, I think I would say, you know, there's sort of a spectrum, right? If you're talking about a brand new business um, you know, I always tell people, I don't want to, you know, try to build an aircraft carrier to go, you know, go, go, go sail around on Lake Calhoun. You know, you got to know where you are <laughs> in the life cycle. If people are coming in here wanting to put in, $25,000 to start a, you know, a consulting business. I think that's a different scenario from a bio perspective than if somebody's coming in, dropping 10 million to get, you know, a manufacturing operation off the ground. So, I mean, I think first and foremost, I would say you got to know what you're dealing with, but I think anything that has any level of investment in it has to have as you said, different scenarios, right? Certainly in, in, in many ways, the, the exit scenario where someone buys your company is the easiest, man. Just, well, and let's, 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 let's go before we go down the exit or the kind of the death disability crisis, all the fun stuff, yeah. right? Let's talk about like just personal cir- circumstance. I've gone through plenty of clients where there will be like when the buyout's happening, it will be either a cash flow valuation yeah. Or it'll be yeah. some sort of negotiated evaluation yeah. because there's not enough yeah. cash flow there. Because in a lot of even significant companies could have that so, same example if yeah. they're on a growth mode. So call yeah. it like growth, you know, no cash sure. or no cash flow versus the cash flow valuation. How do yeah. you handle that? Yeah, and I think the I think it's a I think you got to understand your your customer, right? I mean, because I deal with people who have a very clear understanding of those dynamics that that you just described, right? They understand that the business isn't going to throw off cash. And, and I deal with people that don't. And so, you know, you can have a business, as you know, but not everybody does. You can have a business that has a, that you could go get a valuation and someone could say it's worth 5 million bucks that doesn't generate any cash, right? At that point in its <laughs> yeah, life cycle. Right, right. And so that's, you know, one of the things I always say is I don't like, I don't like mandatory buyouts absent some kind of funding mechanism. So I always say to people, if you're going to have a mandatory buyout, then, then, you know, death is a good example. Then you, you need a life insurance or something so that you're not in a position where somebody just decides, I don't want to be here anymore, so I'm leaving, and you have to pay me. Well, mm-hmm. pay you with what? First of all, you know. <laughs> how, how many people we... listening in have had that conversation yeah. in their head or with a family member or yeah. a partner? <laughs> so first of all, how, how do we value it and then pay you with what? So I – so I think, you know, you can have scenarios, a lot of times, even from the get-go, we'll have two different scenarios, right? We'll have like a, someone comes in and buys the company, it's easy. You, everybody gets their share of the proceeds and everybody, it's a big party. The okay. other scenario- uh, as, you're, as you're going, Dan, I'm uh, sorry, it, think about two, because at that scenario, I think people get caught between this and they, they don't think that there's, as you go on the scenario two, because- Hey, we have to sell this because every Dan wants his money. So sorry, yeah. I added because that's what. Sorry, I keep going. Yeah, no, no, and that's one of the things when you talk about you know overriding the normal rule that the majority owner or owners get to decide everything. I mean, one of the things I'm a big fan of is this sort of drag along tag along concept that just says if I if I'm a seventy percent owner and you're thirty, you know, if I want to sell, 
I get to make you sell as long as you get the same economics as me. You don't get to block that. And the flip side of that is if I'm going to go sell, you get to you get to sell as well. You don't you don't have me having the ability to foist a new partner on you. So, you know, I'm a big fan of those. And that's a scenario where you, you can no, you, I think it's very unusual for a minority to be able to force a sale. But I think the drag along, tag along, giving a minority right to partic- giving a minority a legal right to participate as long as they get the same economics. You know, I, I, so I, I do that as a, I, I use that as a starting point, you know, almost every time. But I just think if you have any complexity in the business, you're almost always going to have different buyout scenarios and, and you're going to have more than one buyout scenario. So you're going to have the buyout scenario where someone comes in and buys the business easy. Everybody gets their share of it. You're going to have the buyout scenario maybe where somebody dies and you have insurance, so they're going to get bought out with cash. And you might say in that circumstance, you know, you you might have different valuations. I mean, in the purchase in the purchase exit. Yeah, why don't you have, explain? Why don't you explain that too? Because I think that's helpful of the like when and how the different valuations based on the purpose yeah. impacts, yeah. and then also expand on the life insurance. I think a lot because I think a lot of people have those set up way wrong where the tax yeah. implications are super effed up. Yeah, yeah. So. So you have to, I mean, insurance is a place too, where if you're dealing with anything of any, of any significance in terms of dollar values, I just think you've got to have a good professional on the team and you know, a bunch and so do I, and I always get them involved if we're dealing with anything of consequence, but you know, valuation is really tricky, right? Because first of all, you don't want to, I mean, my thought is it sort of goes back to, I love the the example you brought up with your daughters, because I think this whole thing goes back to that. You know, you just, you want to have all of these conversations happening against a backdrop of trying to create, you know, fairness for, for the parties here. And I think, you know, 99% of the people I've ever worked with, that's what they want too. And so you can, you know, you can help them get there. I think the external sale is easy because somebody comes in and says, this is what it's worth. And you either accept that or you don't, but in a death scenario or in somebody leaves employment scenario, I mean, I think, you know, to your point, I've seen both oversimplifying people tend to either use some kind of formula that they set up on the front end or they tend to use an appraisal, you know, and just say, we'll go get an appraisal. Pretty which, significant. Oh, which I want your thoughts on appraisals, man. Yeah, so I, it's, it, this, this last 12 months, I seen probably a dozen plus of appraisals for people going through an internal buyout because of the death yeah. or something. And I'm like, that appraiser knows nothing about that yeah. business, man. <laughs> it's, Real, it's a really good point, and I would say to you, my viewpoint on that has changed over time because of what you just described. I think that the the delta between what a business is going to appraise for is, in my estimation, larger than it's ever been. I mean, and I've seen businesses in in recent times where the appraisal has just been, to your point, just just this is crazy. Nobody would ever buy this for this. Even in this environment that has been pretty frothy, I still well, see appraisals actually, that. Oh, like, sorry, we're kind of digressing. We're going down this rabbit hole, but I think it's relevant. Is because I was on this internal buyout, and this advisor was like explaining their 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 ideas on working capital multiples, all this stuff. I'm like, fine. I I'm hearing you loud and clear, and I was truly like, I was giving that individual the benefit yeah. of the doubt. But I'm like, if you ran the numbers. This thing won't pay for itself for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, yeah. that's not part of my job. And I'm like, yeah. what, what is it then? And he's like, <laughs> and he goes, well, I deal with divorces and estate planning. And I'm like, yeah. you're pushing legal documents around to jam a, a, a solution down someone's throat for yeah. your client, not necessarily 
like yeah. responsible for covering payroll and taxes yeah. and working capital. Yeah. Which, so I don't know how, how would you describe that to the audience in yeah. maybe more graceful way than I did? Yeah, no, I mean, what I would say, I mean, honestly, just kind of taking a step back from a very high level, what I would say is I think people should be, I think you should be very cautious about moving away in, a, in an exit scenario where someone buys the business. I think you should be very cautious about moving away from anything that's not just we divvy it up and that's it. And conversely, I think you should be very cautious about all the other exit scenarios. You should be very cautious about taking steps to make sure you don't have a over, you don't have a, a, a valuation that that comes in way too high, and that you um, that you understand cash flow dynamics of the buyout. You know because you can't wreck the business, and and that's where and that's the scenario. Back to what I said is if, if you and I are partners. And you just decide not not because you know I'm the majority, not because I terminate you, or you know you just decide you don't want to deal with me anymore because I'm annoying, and you leave. <laughs> Finally, then, you're to the truth here, Dan. <laughs> right? Then I don't, you know, I don't like having a scenario where I have to buy you out. I like having a scenario where I have the option. I can either buy you out, or I can say that's fine, Ryan. Now you can be the passive owner, and I'll buy you out. You know, whenever we come to an agreement, or whenever you know, mm-hmm. whenever it makes sense for the business. So, you know, I, I don't have, I will say the formula, you know, it's sort of, it depends on whose hands it's in, you know, with somebody with the experience and expertise that you have, obviously I think a formula, you can come to an agreement on a formula. I think one of the things I've observed is you take, you know, I've had buy cells that I've inherited. I mean, I've inherited because someone's come to me when they're in a fight with their partner and said, what do I do here? And you had a, a formula that somebody put in there on the front end that they used in some other buy sell somewhere that doesn't make any sense for this business. Mm-hmm. That creates a situation, and I've seen them in both directions, right? A business that you think is worth five million that the formula says is worth five hundred thousand, or that says is worth fifty million. Yep. And yep. because there's something that changed about the way the formula works mm-hmm. that that they haven't accounted for. So one thing I will say is I usually do when you use a formula. You know, I usually put some kind of um, parameters around it, you know, use a formula, but then put a collar on it or use a formula. Describe, but put, describe the collar because I think I'm tracking just, it. But. Just sort of saying like if you're going to have a, you know, an EBITDA formula, you might have, you know, a net income collar. You know, you, you sort of trying to have two different markers to make you have sure to be hitting that, these kind of things to make sure yeah, that the thing to, works out and that the it, timeline exactly. and the amortization yeah. schedule, all that yes. stuff. Or yeah. if you had an EBITDA formula, you, you might be in a place where, you know, the EBITDA formula would work as long as the business is the size it is. But you've seen this before, obviously, a, a business that does the same thing could be worth a multiple, could go from being worth a multiple of five to being worth a multiple of 10 if they oh, I, grow the business. Well, and actually, there's a real life example. I was working with these two guys and um, the younger guy actually wanted to buy the older guy out. And the company was growing so freaking fast, Dan, that he's like, like, there was no way he could buy out his other partner unless he had equity. There was like, like, because they're not making any, they're like, they're they're pushing everything just to hit their taxes. Yeah. 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 So it's, I mean, I think, I think sometimes what can happen is that people who have, I think if you're going to use the appraisal concept, you got to be very careful and put, and put some parameters around it. And quite frankly, people hate this, but I mean, sometimes it's creating a situation where you got to go get an appraisal and so do I, and then we got to have a battle about it because 
doing that just sort of acknowledges the reality, which is that the appraisals can be very di- different depending on who's doing it and for what purpose. But but I would say the same thing. I just would say the same thing to people about of, about uh, formulas. You got to be very careful with the formula that it's something that you that you think is durable, and that you know you you sort of stress test a little bit with some examples about the business evolving in different directions than what you think. And at the end of the day, you probably have to recognize that, again, this probably goes in the category of if you're trying to build an operating agreement that's going to work perfectly for 50 years, you're probably, that's probably not going to happen. You probably have to have to accept the fact that you're going to probably try to figure out how to do something that works for your first phase and you're going to have to revisit it. So then, and and now we're getting short on time here, but I want to, I think we, I think we covered governance economics for the most part and then exits. Before we move on from excess to crisis, and I just really kind of speak into like death and like disability, kind of just like how do you handle that? Like, which my guess is not a ton of complications complications behind it. But with the exit stand, let's talk about like you know the, the situations that I run into weekly, which you probably do too. Is we got an Alibu offer because all of this shit that you and I just discussed was not done. Dan goes, oh, my ticket's here finally, Ryan. I want to now sell. And so like there's like a the Alibu offer, okay. Great, Dan, that's fine. And you kind of the drag along, tag on might that might be part of your answer. But like, how do you assess that? And then like, what's say, Let's say I okay, Dan, that's fine. Maybe we take it to market. But how do you how does that decision tree go? Yeah, I mean, it's really tricky, right? I mean, when... <laughs> the listeners listening in right now that I'm probably going to send a thousand times when I get these calls. That's your response. It's really tricky. <laughs> no, <Dan>. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, it's a total dodge, but it's but it's so true. I mean, it's you know, it's something that I just have such a strong feeling about dealing with on the front end. And again, it's in the, in the hierarchy of problems to avoid, man, what a nightmare when you have a problem where the business is doing well and you have an event that's pretty predictable, you know, not, not a crazy event. Somebody wants to buy it and you haven't dealt with it, you know, because, and, and to your point, I mean, it's really tricky because you get the person who's in your chair you know, to use the example we've been using where we're, where I'm 70 and you're mm-hmm. 30 and I'm the capital and you're the brains behind the operation, which sort of rings true to me. The, the, you know, this person is coming in wanting to buy this thing. And I'm, and I'm like, Oh my God, this is awesome. And you're sitting there with all the cards and saying that they're not doing it unless they get me and they're not getting me unless I get X. And when I go talk to my lawyer about how am I going to make Ryan sell his interest and do, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? You're not going to make him do anything. And so that's where I, I always say to the people that think they're holding all the cards at the beginning, if you think that it's in your interest holding the cards to not have this stuff nailed down, you're crazy because you want to create a situation where Ryan is signed up for this is how it's going to work if that person shows up with that big bag of money. This is how we're going to divvy it up. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't done it, you know, the, 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 well, and the opposite is, is totally true, too, because like I could be see I could see like, yo, dude, I want to make a half a million bucks to go start something else. And you're going, Hey Ryan, I'm kind of digging my hundred thousand dollar distribution. Like, why don't you get back right. to work, buddy? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's, and, and yeah. by the way, to be fair, Dan, the punt is total and the dodge is totally acceptable. Cause you want to know why dude, like this morning I did that to this call because yeah. the listeners in, I get the calls every week, Ryan, I want out, Ryan, I got another boo offer. My partner and I are not aligned. What should I do? I want to get this wrapped up in 60 days. And I'm just like, you know yeah. the analogy I used this morning? I was like, hey, like you got the trigger event, which isn't that nice to know that it's worth something? However, what I'm hearing is like I had a stroke 
Yeah. What should I do? And then I said, well, you should have been eating well, sleeping well and exercising 10 years ago. And I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm not the ER doctor. (laughs) It's so funny that you say that because that's exactly the analogy I was going to go to is, you know, it's 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 interesting because people understandably, I get it. We, we don't do anything tangible. We, we put words on paper and move them around. But they, they can't, when they come to you, when the patient comes to the doctor and says, I had a stroke, and what do I do? And the doctor says, well, I've been telling you for 10 years that something like this was going to happen if you didn't change X, Y, and Z, and you haven't changed X, Y, and Z. So get in the time machine and go back and listen to me is what you should do. And people sort of understand that, you know, I think more so than they do in my business where they come in and they say, I'm in this situation, I want you to fix this. And it's like, it's kind of the same deal. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like, you know, you had the stroke. I can't, you know, we need to go back in the time machine. We need to get back there. And I would say the other thing. I I had a dude call me, I had a dude call me uh, like three months ago. He's like, Hey, Ryan, I, uh, been listening to your podcast for like two years, sold my company, uh, got the purchase agreement all done and everything like that. And I'm going to make about 45 million bucks. What can I do for taxes? And I was like, you haven't been listening to me for four, for four years then. You've had it on in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I think, yeah, no, right. I mean, it's, it's so true. And, and I do think and the other analogy that I would throw out there is, is sort of like, you know, someone comes to you and has a spouse that, that is just a jerk all the time and tells you 10 stories about how their spouse is a jerk and, and sort of what should I do? And it's sort of like, you know, you probably, again, you probably need that same time machine. It probably, that's probably not a great spouse. And I think that's one of the things I would just always say to people too, is like, if you find yourself in either direction, right? If you're, I mean, this stuff needs to be, um, worked out on the front end to create alignment and, and, and aligned expectations. But at the same time, if you think that if you don't have a good vibe about your partner and you feel like we need to get everything right down to who has to pay for the coffee and how many cup, you know, then there's a point at which you should say, again, I mean, there's a point at which you should say, this might not be a great idea. You might need to find a different, you know, way to interact with this person than to become partners. Because the one thing in all of this is no matter how good the document is, you have to be able to work together and you have to be able to work through things together. It's dude, it's so true, man. I just I like, I think the the arrangement my the that my daughters have, I mean, like yeah, it's so funny because like the spirit of the law. Yeah, it's so. like I think it's really interesting. There's a um uh, a couple of books I've re- read recently on democracies, and um, it's amazing how much our country is built on the spirit, oh, yeah, and right. actually are not written down. No. But then, what you're talking, and what I think is so crucial, is like you're talking through these things to think yeah. through them. Yeah. Right. Like that's the whole point before we, before we wrap up, Dan, I just got to like, I, because it, it, it's so common with buy sell agreements and you can debunk my thought process. Cause I've kind of got myself in a rut, but like so many insurance reps jam buy sell agreements yeah. down people's throats and they're not set up correctly. The money goes outside the company. It's taxed again. I mean, like you just kind of give an overall like philosophy of how to approach death and disability with these buyouts with, with, yeah. with partners. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, a couple things. One, I don't really believe in, you know, I, I believe in, I obviously have a whole bunch of clients that have insurance programs. If you're big enough to need an insurance program, if you've created enough value to need an insurance program, then you have created enough value to get the right people to set it up. The some of the stuff that goes on in this space is just outrageous, both totally in terms agree. of the structure and in terms of the price people pay. The reality is if you and I are partners 
and we have a business that's worth a million dollars, right? And 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 we're 50-50. So you've got five hundred dollars worth of five hundred thousand worth of value. That's not a taxable estate. You know, that's that's not anything that's gonna be nightmarish from a um income tax perspective. I mean, if something happens to you and I've got to pay out your wife over five years, you know, I mean, you and I should figure out how to do that. We don't the the time when if our business is worth a hundred million and you have a tax you have an estate tax problem. And, and we have some liquidity issues where that's your whole estate. We've got to figure out an insurance program and we've got to get somebody in there that can get that set up in a tax. And that's where what, some of that, ins- some of that fully loaded insurance shit actually probably mathematically makes sense. At that's that right. Point. <laughs> that's right. And I think it's, I mean, I think honestly, my, my advice on that front is to echo what you said, which is my advice to people is to be extremely skeptical about it. Uh, I I'd say, you know, five to 10% of my clients have really b- fully built out programs because they have a liquidity issue that, that requires it. But most of the time, you can figure out a way to just, as long as you're paying attention to the concepts of valuation and cash flow that you and I talked about earlier, we can figure out a way to get you know your wife the money that she has coming to her out of the business in a way that doesn't wreck the business and doesn't jam you know you. Well, you I think what I, I'd have to look, I'd have to look at ours, but like I believe ours has in it that it triggers the actual buyout because our partners don't want to be partners with each other's spouses. It's like, Hey, let's just deal with it at the right economic value that based on the valuation discussion that we've already had. So it's like, and then whatever, what I see recently, it was something where like the insurance went to the individual, not to the company. They used to like, fuck, they paid double taxes, dude. It was just like the whole the point tax, of the insurance. I know, the, it was the, just the, ridiculous. The tax nightmares that happen here because somebody's chasing a commission and it's just like a race to try to get signatures on the page to get the commission locked in. It's <laughs> so just true. crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. This has been a, a conversation that is – I would have laughed 10 years ago if I would have said I was really excited to have a conversation about operating agreements. <laughs> but like, dude, the two sides of the coin are it's the financial roadmap. And then there's the spirit of the the arrangement, which is the law. Yeah, And it's like, this is it, man. And like all of the problems I see every day of like so many people I could help. It's because I didn't do these two things right. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, it's sort of like that thing that everybody, you know, talks about when it comes to taking care of yourself physically. Like it's not, you know, just it's okay that you didn't do it for the last, you know, five years. Start doing it today. And that's what I would always say to your point earlier. Like you can get this stuff figured out midstream. It's not the end of the world. I think sometimes people think, oh, we didn't do it. And we're kind of embarrassed that we didn't do it. I mean, you can get it figured out midstream and kind of no matter where you are, you know, getting something done and getting some of these things squared away is better than nothing. But to your point, the scenario where the person shows up and says, I had a stroke, what do I do? It's like, I, I don't know. I, I call an ambulance. <laughs> Which is not me, by the way. No. <laughs> right? mm. And the ambulance chasers should probably charge $900 an hour and they're yeah. going to because they yeah. see the carcass and there's only so yeah. much blood. <laughs> yeah. And I That's just right. I, I just think, Dan, it's like the thought of like having maybe as we're wrapping up your thoughts on how someone should assess the attorney or the people next to them. And and I'm going to give you the out here because you're what you're probably going to say is going to sound self-promoting and it's not. I just trying to think it through is like how important it is that someone has been through that because they're trying to paint the picture of the yeah. future. How yeah. do you how do you if you've never experienced the future? Yeah. How do you hire someone? Because before it was like, hey, they're, they're, I could have a beer with Dan. 
Yeah. So like, I should hire Dan. Sure. <laughs> like outside of that, how do you, how do you, what are some of your thoughts? I mean, I honestly, I think the biggest thing I would say from, you know, from, I mean, I've certainly sat on this side of the table, but from having sat on this side of the table, I feel like I have a, uh, an understanding of the, of the conversation and what it should look like. And what I would say is if I'm going to set up an operating agreement for you, you know, the bulk of our first meeting should be you talking, you know, I should be asking you questions about what you want to have happen, what your vision is, what, what are you worried about? What are the ways, what does it look like for this business to succeed? What does it look like for it to fail? And, you know, I think you can only do a good job with the documents if you get a download from the from the client group about the, what they collectively are concerned about. I don't think there should be an operating agreement, you know, that everybody in the mix hasn't had a chance to talk to the lawyers on. I get really uncomfortable if I've got one person saying, I want you to put this together and they're telling me what they think. But I've got three other people that I've never met that are mm -hmm. out there somewhere who are going to be asked to sign this thing. So. I mean, I think a lot of it, you know, as, as you and I have talked about before, there's a lot of really good lawyers. I think more good lawyers than bad lawyers. I, I, I think, but I think you've, if somebody's just trying to pull a document off the shelf, and I'm not saying like every, we obviously, we, we have different templates that we use as starting points for different situations. But if somebody just asks five questions, what's the name of the business? What's the address? You know, who are the owners? What are the percentages? What's, who are the managers? And that's it. And they give mm -hmm. you a document. I mean, I think there's a pretty good chance that document's not a good fit. You know, so, I mean, to me, that's what I would say is like, if I was going to say, how would you easily judge a conversation? I would say judge it by how much did you talk and how much did I talk? And if I talk the whole time, it's probably not very good. Yeah, I like that, Dan. And you know what would I'll add to that is if someone asks, so let's say I'm, I'm the owner in that situation and the attorney asked me, what would you like me to put in this? Yeah. Like what the like? It's yeah. like it's so it's so funny because I I've over the last couple of years I've it's amazing how many people have to be explained what a CFO's actual capabilities are and some of the stuff that we're doing and and it's like if a CFO asks you what's around the corner you're yeah. you're in a shit up shit's yeah. creek because like the yeah. whole point of an architect is to walk you through the so, blueprint and I think about so. your role it's like here's all of the ways this could go yeah. And then you're helping people think through it instead yeah. of going, well, what do you need? Which I can't do unless I've listened to you tell me about your business and your vision and, and the partnership group and who's doing what and all that stuff. Yep. Yeah. And it's the same Man. thing. It's back, it circles back to what we said before. If you try to go hire somebody to be a CEO and they don't want to negotiate some mm -hmm. compensatory elements that create alignment, they probably aren't the person for that job either. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, I so. just like I, I look at like, it's true that iron iron against iron will make that value growth and all this yeah. actually succeed. Like you said, dude, this has been so fun. Like I yeah. said, I would who would have thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, fun. thanks for having two, me. two final questions. And I, I'm going to ask the first one again, because I don't know if I, if you were on the podcast <laughs> when the, it was called intentional growth, Yeah. but I asked people what the word means to them. Cause I love hearing their definition. So I want to know what your definition of intentional is. Intentional. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of, I, I think you're not, I think I had some English teachers sometime tell me you're not supposed to define things by their opposites, <laughs> but I, I sort of do do that with that word. I love that word and I use it with my kids a lot. And I think to me, it means, you know, taking the time to think about what you want to do and why, as opposed to just sort of drifting. And, and I think of it as being sort of the opposite of drift. Ooh, I love that, dude. Like that a lot. Best place to get in touch with you if people want to reach out. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, you, you know me. You, your comments about the conference bridge sort of landed close <laughs> to home. I mean, I'm the, I'm the, uh, the, the, the oldest forty six. Dude, you're in your forties, so the people listening yeah. can't see you. You gotta, no, you gotta. But, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm, you know, I'm. We've got, you know, we're a law firm with the old school website, and I'm, I'm there, and I'm on LinkedIn. I don't really do much beyond that on social media. So, and I, you know, but, but all my stuff is on my. You can Google me. I mean, you know, there you what, go. What, there what you more go. sophisticated I think my, method could there be than Google? <laughs> I think my team, like, like years back, tried to tame you guys on social. It's like, hey, guys, let's not go. It, it's better now. Allie's, Allie's on it. So, but, it, but I'm not. That's, that's awesome. Hey, Dan, I appreciate you coming in, man. And this has been awesome. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll tell you what, if, if I would have listened to this podcast about 10 years ago, I would have saved myself personally a lot of pain. I hope you found some gold nuggets about um, some and some resources and uh, tools to be able to have conversations with your family members, your partners, uh, potential investors, really just what do you want and how do you, how do you put that into a document and or more importantly, a conversation with the people that you're sitting next to that make sure you're on the same page for your long-term equity goals, your, your distributions, your ownership roles and your, your W-2 wages and your role that you're going to have as a leader. And as that evolves, how are you going to iterate instead of just burying your head in the sand and hoping that everything's going to work out when you're at the deal table? I was at a conference two weeks ago and he, this gentleman, uh, he's going through partnership bio in the middle of his exit and he actually said to me at that workshop if he would have known this material he would have saved him 15 million bucks uh, and I'm not saying that to toot our own horn but I, I just truly believe it because how much conflict he's probably dealing with with no clear way of handling it it's expensive and I would argue I don't have 15 million bucks in my pocket but I would argue that the emotional toll that he's probably going through is potentially comparable for the amount of money that he's actually leaving on the table too. So if you want to check this stuff out and actually get a, get clarity, check out the Intentional Growth Bootcamp May 11th and 12th in uh, Orlando, Florida. It's on the Arcona.io website. Otherwise, uh, there's the virtual Intentional Growth Academy that we just relaunched. Uh, it's the 2.0 version, nine and a half hours, 71 videos, um, but depends on your learning style, uh, but I, I'd check either of them out if you really want to dive into this. Don't uh, forget to stay tuned to next episode where I've got Brandon Henry. He's the uh, co-founder of Mosaic Advisors. They manage 25 families and about $4 billion, I believe something, or billion, I don't know what the rounding error would be on that, but I know it's a, it's in the, the 3 to $4 billion range. And the, it's about what does the ownership mentality look like from the eyes of the boardroom, from the eyes of an investor, also knowing that, hey, they don't have it all perfect too, and you're going to learn a lot about that too. So thanks everybody for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.